You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a short moment. First, we want to give a shout out to our new patron, Penny R. Thank you so much for your support. The list of supporters just keep growing. We want to give a big shout out to Julie M., Darlene B., Patricia C., Thomas S., Elaine R., Adam B., JRS Billy, Melissa K., Corin F., Megan G., Mark B, Sarah WJ, Kari C, Harry M, Wendy C, Justin H, Mickey B, Identity Crisis, which is a good friend of my brother's, Molly M, Lisa M. I'm going to give a big, big shout out to our biggest supporters. Our biggest supporters include Krista D, Lynn T, Vicky R, Mary B is our longest supporter. She's been with us since the very beginning. And our biggest supporter is Douglas S. And if you would like to become a patron of Ohio Mysteries, head on over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. And now, it's time to throw another log on the fire campers and dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Tonight, the movie industry is handing out its 2022 Academy Awards. One of the big contenders is Dune, with 10 nominations. I bring that one up because it was made by Warner Brothers. Now, I'm sure some of you know this. Many of you may not. But the Warner Brothers were from Ohio. That's right, one of the world's biggest producers of movie and television programs has its roots in Youngstown. That's where brothers Harry, Sam, Albert, and Jack Warner were raised. It's where they got their start selling bicycles, soap, and ice cream before perching their first theaters, making their first movies, and starting down a road that ended in Hollywood. In this episode, we're going to focus on their years in Youngstown and explore how they evolved from an impoverished but entrepreneurial family growing up in one of the state's toughest neighborhoods to one of the most recognizable names in any industry. By the way, much of the research in this tale comes from Jack Warner's 1964 autobiography, so there's a bit more here from his perspective than that of his brother's, but it's a book that offered a rich and colorful portrait of those formative years in Northeast Ohio.
The Warner brothers were born to Pearl and Benjamin Warner, Polish immigrants who came to North America in 1888. Ben supported his growing family as a shoemaker. They had 11 children in all, two of whom died before their fourth birthday. Of the nine surviving children, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Anna were born in Poland. Jack and David were born in London, Ontario, Canada. And Rosa, Sadie, and Milton were born in Maryland. The family was fully settled into the United States by the time Thomas Edison was traveling about giving public demonstrations of his new invention, the kinetoscope, movie camera, and projector. Edison was an Ohio native, of course, but it was a different famous Ohioan who indirectly led to the Warners moving to Youngstown. In 1896, William McKinley was campaigning for president, and through the summer, there were low-fare excursion trains from the east into Canton, McKinley's hometown. Harry Warner was just 14 years old and obsessed with wanting to see McKinley. He took the few dollars he'd earned working in his father's shoe shop and made the trip to Canton. It was during that little adventure when Harry met a man who said, You're an ambitious kid, and you say you can fix shoes. Why don't you go to Youngstown? The place is full of Polacks, just like you, and you'll make money. They just put up a big new steel mill there, and the whole town's jumping. Well, Harry took his advice. He got on the next train to Youngstown and arrived at night, when the sky shimmered like a scattered fire. The great furnaces of the mills poured smoke across the city. He loved it. He was a city boy through and through. Harry learned there were indeed thousands of Poles in Youngstown. There was even a Poland Avenue and a nearby village named Poland. Harry was sold. He found and rented a vacant store on Spring Common and wrote to his father to send him a shoe jack and some tools. He started repairing shoes in the storefront of his little shop, where people could pause and look in to watch him. He became such a success that his family quickly followed him. His father, Ben, and his brother, Albert, joined him at the cobbler's shop. Their skills became a public spectacle. Crowds pressed against the glass to watch them shaping the leather and driving nails. One customer stopped in and questioned a sign that said, While you wait. Does that really mean what it says? The man asked. Take off your boots and I show you, Father Ben said. Ben handed the man a newspaper. He only made it to the second page when Ben handed the man his repaired shoes. Years later, that man, Henry Garlick, became president of the First National Bank of Youngstown and he never forgot how impressed he was with the Warners. He would come to loan them tens of thousands of dollars over the years as they pursued a variety of enterprises. Now, as the days in the cobbler shop went on, Ben realized that most of the audience watching him and his sons ply their trade weren't customers. But was there a way to cash in on all this attention? So he turned the back of the store into a market and brought the rest of the family in to sell fruits, vegetables, and canned goods. 
Unfortunately, as soon as the rival cobblers saw what the Warners were doing, they set up their own shows, abandoning their backstore benches for the prime real estate of their storefronts. When the competition thinned the audience out, the Warners gave up the shoe business, found a larger store on West Federal Street, and expanded their grocer to include a butcher shop. They served a melting pot of a neighborhood filled with Italians, Greeks, Germans, and Slovaks. The Warners, who were Jewish, also included a special kosher room where they killed chickens in accordance with rabbinic law for their Hebrew friends. Young Jack Warner was in charge of deliveries, rested from bed at four o'clock every morning to get the delivery wagon ready. It was pulled by an old ex-racehorse named Bob. Jack would finish his deliveries by 8 a.m., always using a route that would end near the grammar school he attended. Then he'd pat the horse on the rump. The horse would take himself home to be brushed down and fed by Jack's mother, and Jack would go to class. Now, Youngstown was a rough city, already infiltrated by the organized crime that would someday have it recognized as one of the most dangerous places to live. The Warners came to expect one or two murders in their neighborhood every Saturday night. Knives and brass knuckles were standard accessories for young men. Jack recalled there were times he'd be working behind the counter when one of the bullies would flash a stiletto out of a sleeve and demand to be sold meat at a discount. Jack said it wasn't worth fighting back. Not physically, anyway. He said he always agreed to the deal, then put his thumb on the scale to get what he was owed anyway. One day, Jack's father gave him a thirty-two caliber Smith & Wesson and lessons on how to use it, shooting tin can targets in the woods. One late Saturday night, Jack was alone at the store, cleaning up. He was a fuss budget and always remained to do the little things that had been overlooked. Suddenly, a man appeared at the door, insisting to be let in. Jack told him the store was closed, but the man produced a gun and began to load it with bullets. Jack's own gun was at home. But in a timely chance of fate, two beat cops strolling by saw the encounter, chased the man down, and shot him dead in the back. When Jack got home that night and told his family what happened, his father said, I'm glad it wasn't you with the gun. Killing is no good. He was surely a bad man, but who knows what he might have been. Jack said he never carried his gun after that. Ben and Pearl Warner imposed a loving but firm discipline at home. All nine of their children grew up in cramped spaces that more resembled a rush-hour subway car than a home. When landlords tired of the loud and buzzing family, they would order them to move, and they'd have to find another back room or basement or decrepit shack to live in. Pearl sometimes would lie about how many children she had and try to hide the rest from her landlord, but inevitably they would be discovered and tossed into the street again, where they would prowl the district, looking for a new place. The kids all took jobs as soon as they were old enough to work, selling papers, shining shoes, running errands, weeding gardens. Everyone's money went into a common fund, 
though it was never enough. If the boys needed clothes, their father would lay them face down on a bolt of cloth, mark it with white chalk, and make the suits himself. Pearl and her daughters cut and sewed their own dresses. They finally settled into their own house, a big place on West Elm Street. The plumbing was outdoors, an outhouse, of course, and a pump attached to a backyard well for water. The family bathtub, lined with lead, sat on the back porch. The kids would line up and, one by one, take their turns standing in the tub while they worked themselves up with soap. Then Mom would douse them with a huge pitcher of cold water, Even in winter, the sounds of their shocked gasps and yells could be heard a block away. Jack Warner said he remembered that bathtub ritual when they were filming The Sea Beast, a silent movie featuring John Barrymore as a sea captain. Barrymore was hungover and seemed unable to work up the anger and frustration that was needed for a particular scene. So Jack went and got a bucket filled it with cold water, and unsuspectingly threw it at him. The camera kept filming when Barrymore turned to him with bloodshot eyes and screamed in rage. Jack said he laughed later when critics praised Barrymore's performance in that scene, saying it was his mother who deserved credit for that special effect. The family market became enough of a dependable source of income that the Warners were able to indulge in a few luxuries, like buying a piano, which several of the children learned to play, or occasionally hiring help for their overworked mother. All the Warner children made it to adulthood without a single trip to jail or reform school. It could have turned out differently. Jack once threw his lot in with a teenage mob called the Westlake Crossing Gang. He joined them for a couple of rumbles with a rival gang, throwing fists and stones. But their teen boss, Tuffy McElvey, vanished one day, and the gang broke up. Mostly, the boys just spent any leisure time they had playing football or sandlot baseball. At Youngstown's Rayan High School, Albert became the star halfback of the football team for a season before dropping out of school. Milton, the baby of the family, had a pitching arm that attracted pro scouts and was even courted by the New York Giants. But he died of acute appendicitis his senior year in 1915. Milton is the only Warner buried in Youngstown, He's at the Children of Israel Cemetery on Granada Avenue. The only son of Ben and Pearl Warner to get a high school diploma was David, who was one year younger than Jack. He graduated from Rayan High School. I couldn't determine exactly when, but it was probably around 1911. Jack Warner, a year older than David, never even bothered to enroll at the high school. Though once he became famous... He used to embellish his resume by saying he spent a couple of years at Rayan High. He hadn't even spent a day there. Later, he said school would not have taught him what he needed to know anyway. As a movie producer, he was better served by trips to carnivals, fairs, theaters, anywhere where people were hamming it up. He liked hamming it up, too. When he was eight, 
he took all his spare nickels to Banner Studio on West Federal Street and had a strip of photos taken showing him in the throes of different emotions, laughter, surprise, sorrow, and rage. One day, he would hang those yellow and faded photos in his Burbank, California office. Jack found a way to get the audience he craved. Before his voice changed, he was a pretty good singer, a rare boy soprano. He started taking gigs at lodges, clubs, churches, and benefits, belting out songs like Wait Till the Sun Shines, Nellie, and Sweet Adeline. People told him he'd do even better with an Italian name, so he started performing as Leon Zuardo, and the box office receipts grew. He joined a vaudeville tour. He didn't really like it, those nights in flea bag motels and many days with not enough to eat. After one season of that, his brother Sam told him his voice was going to change soon. He wouldn't be hitting those notes for long, so he should consider a career change. He told him to get out in front, where the customers were, where the real money was being made. Voices can fade, actors can lose their good looks, but the people in the front office go on. Sam took his own advice and looked for business opportunities where he could hold the purse strings. He bought a portable gambling machine, a sort of floating crap game. Suckers paid a nickel to spin a wheel, but it was rigged enough that Sam always made a good profit. Then he went to work as a barker for a carnival. At one point, he was the agent for a snake charmer who wrestled big reptiles. Then Sam heard of an amazing invention called the ice cream cone, and Sam became the first purveyor of ice cream cones in Youngstown. Brother Harry, meanwhile, was becoming the family's financial wizard. He loved being the buyer for the family market and meat business and planning the sales. He also teamed up with brothers Albert and Sam to open a store that sold and repaired bikes. This was, after all, the golden age of the bicycle. And before long, the Warner shop became a gathering spot for racers from all over the area. One of the regulars was Dave Bowman from the nearby town of Struthers. Bowman had worked up a dangerous stunt where he would mount a 50-foot-high platform, ride his bike down a ladder, then dive over the handlebars headfirst into a tank of water. Sam became Bowman's manager. The 21-year-old Bowman would perform at carnivals, fairs, and in Youngstown City Parks. Then he and Sam would pass the hat and share the bounty. The partnership came to a tragic end in 1910. During a performance, Bowman was halfway down the ladder when his wheel broke. It threw him to the ground, breaking his neck and killing him. Sam gave up his dreams of a circus career after that. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. Uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. 
Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. By this time, Albert had become a traveling soap salesman for Swift and Company. Harry went to work for the Meat Packers Armor and Company. And Sam got a job as a fireman on the Erie Railroad, shoveling coal while trying to decide how to get back into show business. He figured it out one day when Sam paid a visit to an old friend named George Olenhauser, who had a machine shop on Central Square. There, he was tuning up an Edison kinetoscope, and Sam was intrigued by the crude movie projector. He spent hours at the shop learning how to operate and repair it. Sam landed a job as a projectionist all the way over in Chicago, but as soon as he heard a kinetoscope was coming to the Idora Amusement Park in Youngstown, he rushed back home. Hundreds of patrons were drawn to the park every night to watch films like In the Jug. In that one, a drunk wearing a cape and a silk top hat weaves along the street with his bottle of booze and doesn't notice that some mischievous boys have stretched a rope across the walk. He reaches the rope, stumbles and falls. A cop shows up, the boys scatter, and in the final scene, the drunk is shown leering out of a jail window. The movie was over before patrons really had time to settle into their chairs, but it was a big hit, and the Warner Brothers saw the promise in it. Sam soon learned that someone in town was desperately trying to sell his kinetoscope. He wanted $1,000 for the machine and one film. It was an astronomical sum, and yet a bargain basement price for the newest wonder of wonders. Sam ran all the way home with this news and rallied the family to the cause. The siblings pooled all their resources, and Father Ben was confident enough in his sons to offer up his savings. They pulled together $850. To get the other $150, they pawned their old delivery wagon horse, Bob. With tears in their eyes, they told the pawn shop owner they fully intended to buy Bob back. Then Sam hurried to the owner of the kinetoscope, paid the $1,000, and took possession of the machine. In the days that followed, the backyard of the Warner House on Elm Street soon started looking like a carnival on Sundays. The vaudevillians they had met came out and tossed clubs or charmed snakes. And in an old tent that Sam put up, after painting it black to make it extra dark inside, they charged people to watch the only film they had, The Great Train Robbery, directed and photographed by Thomas Edison's own cameraman, Edwin Porter. When they learned a carnival was coming to Niles, that was a town a few miles away, the brothers rented an empty store on the main street and invited carnival goers into their makeshift theater. Sam ran the projector, Albert sold the tickets, Jack sang his songs, 
Harry managed the money. They made $300 in one week. That store in Niles was never marked with a monument or a plaque, but the Warner family always considered it historic and the beginning of the Warner Brothers motion picture empire. Because initially they only had the one film, The Great Train Robbery, they constantly had to find new markets. A town would be played out in about a week. So they went to Steubenville, Gerard, and Warren, then across the Pennsylvania line into Sharon, Meadowville, and Newcastle. There were plenty of challenges in those early days. The film was brittle and fragile and had to be repaired often with patching cement, and it was dangerously flammable. The tiniest spark would be enough to explode the fumes inside the tiny shed they used as their workroom. One day, a safety inspector paid a visit to their shed, puffing on a cigarette. The brothers screamed at him to put it out, and he did. The next week, the man returned and entered the workshop alone, where he absentmindedly lit a smoke. The shed blew apart. As the brothers dragged his burning body from the building, he was already dead. Now, there came a time when their only film, The Great Train Robbery, couldn't be repaired anymore. The images were blurry. It was time for a new plan. That's when Harry, Albert, and Sam went to Newcastle, a town in western PA that was in the center of a growing industrial district. They rented a vacant store and called it Cascade Theater. They borrowed 99 chairs from a local funeral home. 100 chairs would have required them to make renovations they couldn't afford. And they rented new films from a distributor in Pittsburgh. They turned a profit, charging a nickel a show, but after a year, they decided the real money was in film distribution. So Sam moved to Pittsburgh to take charge of their plans to buy a motion picture exchange. Harry and Albert, both married by now, followed him. And when Jack was 17, he convinced his parents he needed to go too. The four brothers were booking and shipping films to theaters all over the region and soon accumulated some 200 movie titles. Then they grew their enterprise to new distributorships in Virginia, Baltimore, Atlanta, and even San Francisco. The money was pouring in. And then it all came to an end. Led by Thomas Edison, big names in the movie industry came together in what they called the trust. They succeeded in legal and business maneuvers that turned them into a monopoly. No producer could make a picture. No exchange could sell a picture. No theater could show a picture without paying for the licenses to do so. Then the trust started buying up everything, and anyone who didn't sell to them was choked out of business. The Warner Brothers had to sell. Sam and Jack were living in Norfolk, Virginia at the time, operating the exchange there. Sam looked at his little brother Jack and said, let's go back home and make another start. So they returned to Youngstown in Sam's new Buick White Streak, the hot rod car of its day. They banged on the door of their parents and one in the morning. 
Now, the brothers were crestfallen, having to return, but the family was happy to see them, and they hooted and hollered as Sand gave them rides in his car through the streets of Youngstown. It was the first car his parents and siblings had ever been in. Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack next sat down to kick around ideas of what to do next. They had a combined bank account from the business and figured there was enough money there to risk some new adventure. Harry turned to Sam and Jack and suggested they try to make a cup of inexpensive films. Harry knew of an abandoned foundry in St. Louis that they could use for a studio. So Sam and Jack were on a train to St. Louis where they used the time traveling to throw together a plot about Indians chasing settlers. They called it Peril of the Plains. They hired actors, coaxed members of the Missouri National Guard to pose as immigrants, and acquired a single covered wagon. Then they made a second film, Raiders on the Mexican Border. By Jack's own words, the films were turkeys, but it was a start. And by now, a group of independent motion picture companies were successfully pushing back the monopoly that had been formed by the Edison Trust. Now, since we wanted to focus on the time of the Warners in Ohio, here's where they're going to depart Ohio permanently. So we're just going to hit some important highlights after this. Soon after Sam and Jack began making films, they moved to California. Brothers Harry and Albert soon followed. Their first major movie was in 1918, when they purchased the film rights for My Four Years in Germany. It was a best-selling novel about wartime atrocities. It was a commercial and critical success, and the brothers used the profits and the momentum to establish Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank. In 1927, they procured the technology for the movie industry's first talking picture, The Jazz Singer. Their studio invested $500,000 in the film. It made them $3 million in profits. Sadly, Sam Warner died of pneumonia just before the premiere of that movie. Sam's death changed everything. Jack began to clash with Harry and Albert. Sam's sunny and optimistic personality wasn't there to warm things up between the stubborn youngest brother and his stern older siblings. Some studio employees claimed they once saw Harry chasing Jack through the studio, waving a lead pipe and shouting, I'll get you for this, you son of a bitch. They remained in business together for another three decades, but in 1956, Jack tricked his brothers in order to assume exclusive control of the company. He had talked Harry and Albert into putting Warner Brothers on the market, but he had secretly organized a syndicate to purchase their stocks. By the time Harry and Albert learned what Jack was up to, it was too late. Harry and Jack never talked again, and when Harry died in 1958, Jack didn't go to his funeral. He went on vacation instead. It wasn't the only division in the family. 
Jack had married a San Francisco woman named Irma, who gave him his only son, Jack Jr. He later divorced her and married a woman named Ann Page, a move that isolated him from some of his family and eventually dissolved his relationship with his son. Jack Warner doesn't even mention Jack Jr. in his 1964 autobiography. Jack became a polarizing and controversial figure throughout his career. He was feared, even hated, by many employees, and at the same time respected for his shrewd instincts. After all, he steered the company through the Great Depression, stood up to Germany during World War II by releasing anti-Nazi movies, and expanded Warner Brothers into TV shows as that medium began to rise. Jack Warner remained a force in the industry until his retirement in the early 1970s. He died in 1978. In more than a century of filmmaking, the Warner Brothers studio gave us silver screen classics like Casablanca, My Fair Lady, The Music Man, The Maltese Falcon, A Star is Born, House of Wax, and The Old Man in the Sea. The stars under contract to the studio during that golden age of film included Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Doris Day, Joan Fontaine, Edward G. Robinson, Peter Lorre, Douglas Fairbanks, Errol Flynn, James Garner, and Roger Moore. In modern times, Warner Brothers gave us Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and the Matrix movies and various DC comic films like The Dark Knight, Man of Steel, and Joker. Back on May 14, 1931, the Warner family gathered in Youngstown to dedicate a luxurious new Warner Theater to the people of the city where it all started. It cost $1.5 million to build. The first movie shown in the theater was The Millionaire. The last movie shown in 1968 was Bonnie and Clyde. Today, the theater is Powers Auditorium, part of the Dior Performing Arts Center, and is listed in the National Register of Historic Places. In front of the theater, in the median on West Federal Street, a historical marker commemorates the town's famous movie makers. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. We are also a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts, the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Also, check out our new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Ohio Mysteries. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.